Hello and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr and we're here in the Old Capitol Senate Chamber on the campus of the University of Iowa to talk about cultural memory and commemoration. I'm glad you can join us. This theme, cultural memory and commemoration, will take us down some compelling pathways over the next four World Canvas programs. All very interesting stuff. We're going to delve into the intersection of music, theater, and cultural memory in part two. In part three, we'll hear from a leading scholar on how the Third Reich and the Holocaust are remembered in nations and populations that were most intimately involved in or affected by World War II, fascism, and Nazi atrocities. And in the last segment of this four-part series, we'll take a look at the other side of official memorial narratives when we consider alternative histories and what's called counter-memorials. But we begin the series tonight by asking what and why do we remember? It's my pleasure to introduce our guests tonight. Just next to me is Jeff Porter. Jeff is an associate professor in the University of Iowa Department of English. He's a documentary filmmaker, an essayist, and the author of the memoir, Oppenheimer is Watching Me. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Next to him is Clifton Spargo, the provost postgraduate visiting writer in fiction at the University of Iowa for this academic year, and the author most recently of the novel Beautiful Fools, The Last Affair of Zelda and Scott Fitzgerald, published in 2013. Thank you so much for being here, Clifton. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So, um, memory such an intriguing thing. Each person carries individual memories that uh, some, you know, we may keep to ourselves and really never share with anyone else. And then there are those memories that we hold and we talk about and we share with our families, passed down generation to generation. Those memories and the narratives that develop from them become the histories of a time and a place and a people. Um, as a novelist, Clifton, as an author and a filmmaker, Jeff, how do you guys wrap your heads around something as sort of uh, elemental and yet sort of slippery as cultural memory? How does it affect the work you do? Well, you know, there's so much forgetting that, that uh, um, precedes any, any kind of remembrance. And the actual memories, the raw memories that seem to make that possible um, play a very small role. It's a bit of a surprise, especially if you're, you're serious about remembering something. When I was uh, writing my book, I was trying to remember the Cold War, and partly because my parents forgot it. <laughs> it was their world, and they kind of forgot it. And um, I interrogated them uh, uh, um, viciously, and I just, I just, I got, blank stares, and it was really kind of mind-boggling. So I think, you know, the, uh, uh, for me, the, the remembering something requires some kind of motivation, and, and, and partly it was sort of panic. I mean, this is something, the more they, the more they expressed the forgetfulness, the more uh, um, intrigued I was by what they forgot. And um, I had memories from the Cold War as a little kid, and they were, uh, but they were fragmentary. I couldn't build anything with these little memories. I remember the air raid sirens, which were awful, and I never, I never really lost the fear and loathing once those air raid sirens came on. I knew that it was just a trial, and at two o'clock in the morning, but I would lock my transistor radio to our rock and roll station. It was under my bed, and the air raid sirens go off, and really, it did sound like the end of the world, and I would uh, <coughs> fall out of bed, reach for my transistor radio, hit WKBW, and if, as long as the kinks were on, it was okay, <laughs> you know? But if, if I heard the static and some trace of Conrad, that was it. I mean, I would have died on the spot, but that's what I was sort of waiting for. I have that memory. 
I remember also when my dad, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, started carrying jugs of water down in the basement. And my dad was kind of like, not really alert to the political moment. And so he was a musician. And, and that he was paying attention to something that made him do this was, uh, was a powerful image in my mind. I'm a little kid, I remember that too, but that's certainly not enough to work with. It was the forgetfulness of my parents, and so then uh, um, I, I wanted to fill in the gaps. And so mem re remembering for me is, is, is sort of uh, being provoked by, by forgetfulness and then finding ways to fill in the gaps. Yeah, yeah, is it something like that for you as well, Clifton? Yeah, well, I like what Jeff said, first of all, as long as the kinks are on, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> if we take one thing away from the show, I love the kinks. But I also like that Jeff began, began with forgetting because the relationship between memory and forgetting that is always to the forefront, I think, with any creative act. You have to worry about that. And in going for this particular story about Zelda and Scott in Beautiful Fools, I'm going to the one episode that really we know almost nothing about. And it's a very weird thing that that came about. I was talking with uh, Fitzgerald scholar James West, who actually is the editor for the Cambridge edition to uh, Fitzgerald's works. And he says, yeah, you picked the right story. It's amazing that in lives so well documented, uh, lives well documented by Scott and Zelda themselves. Scott kept a meticulous ledger of his entire career their correspondence is ample. Um, we know so many details ab about their lives, and yet I would get to the end of all these biographies, and I would start flipping back, wondering when was the last time they saw each other? And it turns out it's this trip they took to Cuba in April of 1939. None of the biographers actually established the dates, but I was able to find the notice of their arrival and their departure in the Havana Post. Uh, so, so that documentation I was able to establish that was an eight-day trip. And to me, that moment spoke to me as a fiction writer. It, first of all, there is the historical curiosity about Scott and Zelda, but there's also just the scenario. It's the last chance scenario of a couple of any of us imagining someone in our lives, whether it's you know a, a romantic love affair or just parents, siblings, or people who are most valuable to us, and you don't know it's the last time you're ever going to see them. And so that scenario grabbed my imagination. And then the idea that was Zelda and Scott off the historical grid, so to speak, uh, I, could allow, I could invent them and I could allow the possibility that they might reinvent themselves. So I like to call it the hole in history, and that's kind of where the imagination entered, uh, is in that hole in history. And there are lots of ways in which I think forgetting is, is, is key to the composition process. One of the things with writers who are so well documented and their lives come through in all these biographies is you have to remember how much of the ordinary life goes missing. So when I get to know Zelda and Scott and all the facts of their lives through biographies, then I have to know them so well that I begin to forget their lives the way they do. Yeah. So there's all kind, there, are all, there are all kinds of moments um, in the novel where they're misremembering. And yeah. Scott gets dates of where he was during the crash, confused with where he mm -hmm. was when Zelda was starting mm -hmm. to break down. Mm -hmm. Because that's how, the real, that's how minds truly work. Yeah. Uh, memory is attached to that process of forgetting.
Yeah, and so the, 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 the writing itself, which has become you know, the real means of trying to remember, but it's, a, it's, it's kind of a new memory, it's a constructed memory, and that's really the most we can do. I think with that Chinese proverb, that I don't know very many Chinese proverbs, but I, I do know this one, and I think it's the uh, um, ink is the strongest, is a stronger memory than is the memory, than a strong memory. The, the, the writing is somehow essential to making memories somehow last. And I think that's sort of the work of cultural memory is to, uh, is to somehow string together the stories as containers for, for memories that are reconstructed. And I think the recovery, of, um, the recovery of personalities that do have a kind of uh, um, prominent role in, in any historical moment is uh, an interesting way of pursuing that. I was recovering Oppenheimer, who, whom to me was, uh, um, had been forgotten um, when I was doing my work. J. Robert Oppenheimer, the physicist. Um, he was forgotten in his own lifetime by an active, uh, um, what would you call it, uh, an act of oppression, political oppression by the government, since he no longer fit within their scheme to build a hydrogen bomb. In fact, he suddenly became had second thoughts about the whole, uh, whoops, <laughs> whole atomic program. And so um, the government did its best to repress him and repress his memories and was very, very successful. And so by my adult moment, he had pretty much just become an entry in Wikipedia and that was, that was hmm. pretty much it. So recovering Oppenheimer and doing the same thing is just um, somehow replaying all the facts of his life that had been somehow left out. Um, in new ways um, made a big difference. And the crucial act for me in recovering Oppenheimer was sort of a, an act of empathy and that was to, sort of, to play a kind of ventriloquism with Oppenheimer and that is to actually get into his head and recreate his voice so that he's not just simply an object of historical writing, he actually sort of is remade in, in, in my text and he kind of comes to life as does Gary Powers and many other kind of uh, personalities from the, from the Cold War. Mm -hmm. And so the ventriloquism to me was something new and, and, and that had the, most, um, had the most effect on my imagination in, in the effort to somehow reconstruct a memory that might stay alive within this narrative. Mm -hmm. Well, and you were also a ventriloquist, no? Um, for both Scott and Zelda. I have to play both, both parts. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, one of my favorite moments in the novel just in the reception of the novel, my agent first read the manuscript. She was very worried when we get to page 45. Um, there's a letter from Zelda, and she said, well, what are we, we're gonna have to ask permission from Princeton. This could take a while. How much are we gonna have to pay? I said, I made it up. <laughs> um, but it seemed to me that as a writer, of course you go and you make the letter up. Uh, the, the, there's tons of correspondence that survives, but in each of our lives, there's so much of the everyday that goes mm -hmm. missing. Mm -hmm. And we know there are letters yeah. that went missing from Scott and Zelda, and it seemed to me a more intriguing possibility uh, to, to capture her voice, and not to imitate it exactly. By that point in her life, um, her free associative capacity was wild, and so as wild as my letter may be, uh, her letters were even wilder, but to capture some of the rhythm mm -hmm. and, and some of the truth of, of that life. And the other thing I wanted to say that seems uh, similar to what Jeff is saying about the uh, Oppenheimer's almost disappearing from history is Scott and Zelda seem so permanent to us now, but it's worth remembering that it wasn't 
necessarily that it had to be so, uh, that it wasn't necessarily so. In fact, I write about them, and uh, you know, I'm not sure what it says about me that I'm fascinated by the Scott and Zelda of the 30s, that they lived this kind of allegorical life for the century. Zelda is the age of the century, uh, and they embody, and they become the personalities and the uh, poster children for the jazz age, and after the crash in October of 1929, five months later, Zelda begins her breakdown, and Scott and Zelda live a pretty catastrophic 1930s, uh, each of them. Uh, Scott once said, I lost my capacity for hope on the little road that led to Zelda's asylum, and that becomes really the drama, the two of them fighting personal demons and a lot of loss. We think of that extravagant, glamorous couple of the 20s. We don't think about them as much in the, in the 30s. And Scott's reputation by that time, by the late 30s, was significantly on the, the decline. And we think of The Great Gatsby as a permanent book, but it sold under 23,000 copies in its lifetime. Oh, what a shame. Uh, um, <laughs> well, I know, but it, it, for a book that sells, how many, yeah, we, we, we'd all be happy to sell. Uh, but, um, but for a book that sells, whatever it sells now, uh, and it's, he wasn't remembered as the writer of The Gatsby when he died. He was remembered as the writer of This Side of Paradise, which is his spectacular oh. debut, and as a short story writer for the Saturday Evening Post. And he was really on the wane in terms of critical reputation. In fact, there's one story which I kind of replay in my novel of somebody meeting him while he's writing for the movies in Hollywood and stopping and saying, Scott Fitzgerald, I thought you were dead. Uh, yeah. And yeah. that really was the point at which it, it, he had arrived. His reputation was very much in jeopardy and he was somewhat anonymous after so much fame. And I think that's also an important part of the story here is I was interested in the Scott and Zelda who get just outside uh, the arena of celebrity and become human in, in right. that border area, mm -hmm. as I said before, when they're off the grid. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, you guys have sort of a, I don't know, kind of a heavy responsibility in a way here because you have, in fact, used uh, uh, real people in some sense in memoir or in a, in a novelization. And, you know, some hundred years from now when this memory that we think we have of the 20s and the 30s and people like um, Scott and Zelda or of the 50s and Oppenheimer, that will be so remote to a, to a people a century from now they will perhaps look at the books you've written and what you have added to this whole picture is part of a cultural memory that will be available to them, right? It's, it's frightening to think that um, historians 75 years from now will actually be setting these texts as primary resources <laughs> and, and imagining that these are actually kind of the, the thoughts and, and the words of these men and they are being offered to the world as kind of, you know, the factual basis for sort of a new truth. But I think, you know, the... The scary implication of that is that memory, especially in the collective sense, is continually being rewritten. Mm -hmm. The narratives are, are constantly being retold. And I think it's naive, and even though it's irresistible, sometimes even necessary to imagine that memory is a kind of stable, permanent, and uh, verifiable kind of thing. Um, it's really not. You know, the neurologists are quick to tell us about how unreliable memory is. 
And you don't have to be middle-aged to suffer from unreliable memories. I think it sort of happens. It seems to be structured in the very way that uh, memories are, are stored by an associative imagination that is more wild than Borges mm -hmm. in its ability to kind of connect things that maybe don't belong together. Right. And of course, there's then the question of the personal, the, the paradigm of personal memory and then the difference with social memory with Scott and Zelda, I often say about historical fiction that you have to remember that it's not necessarily the what. You have to begin with the why and the what will follow. So why do you want to tell this story now? Mm -hmm. um, and I've been asked, like, why I happen to, my book happened to be published alongside a film of The Great Gatsby, yeah. uh, and no, Baz Luhrmann and I are not friends. Uh, mm -hmm. And I had no idea the movie was coming out when I was writing this book. Yes, my publisher then timed it to, be, yes. to, to arrive closely with the movie. But I like to think that there's something, that if, you, if you look for a trend, scratch a trend, and you'll find a tradition. So with, with the kind of book that I'm writing, there are antecedents that are not about Scott and Zelda. Mm -hmm. But if we're thinking about why their story right now has a certain kind of appeal, I do think, for me, looking at these two personalities in the decade of the Great Depression, at a moment in time when we've now suffered the greatest economic recession since the Great Depression, and we're thinking about that in relation to periods of extravagance before that, that there's a way in which many of our contemporary concerns start to be uh, put on the, the past. And I think that's always happening in what we remember at a particular moment in time as a culture and what we give emphasis to reflects uh, contemporary interests. I'll just give one quick anecdote too, because movies are a very interesting gauge of this. There's a very rare 49 uh, Gatsby that you can go back and see, and it's heavily under the influence of the, of the Hayes Code. So <laughs> the end of the movie, it's a great, it, it's, a, it's a lousy reading. No of, it's a lousy reading of Gatsby, but it's a wonderful reading of late 1940s um, because Daisy ends up pleading, you know, the, the book ends with the notes of carelessness about these two careless people. She ends up pleading with Tom, we have to call uh, Gatsby and tell him that it's a case of mistaken identity and Wilson's on his way and the f they actually, Tom's like, no, no, we can't do this, we can't do this. And then he finally agrees, okay, you wore me down. And so he picks up the phone and the phone is ringing at Gatsby's mansion while Wilson is walking up to shoot him. And then they, they do the double horrendous but beautiful, marvelously crazy, uh, make the, uh, the <laughs> choice to have Gatsby speaking to Nick in the pool right before he's shot and he repents. He says, I've been thinking, Nick, I've led my life in a wrong way. I think I'm going to turn myself in for my past crimes and go straight. And it's right then that Wilson comes in and shoots him. So it's this wonderful, ridiculous moralizing of Fitzgerald's yeah. story. But it reflects the moment in time yeah. and what the concerns of the culture were at that moment. And so you know, as, as a fiction writer, you're not deliberately setting out to do that, but you're probably unconsciously tapping yeah. some of that.
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's just spend a couple of minutes too talking about the importance of place and built spaces or natural spaces in, in cultural memory. We've talked a little bit about Cuba of that period and your, your, your descriptions of Cuba and the right. beach and having never been there, I, you know, I haven't seen it myself, but I see it through your eyes in this novel. And I feel like I know what I'm looking at. I feel like I know the environment they're in. And you did a, a film some years ago, a documentary on um, uh, traditional dance related to a saint's Oh, procession yes, 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 of yes. men who danced the Giglio. And tell me just right, a little right, bit right. about that. Memory in place. This was a, a Saints Festival in Brooklyn, New York um, called the St. Paulinus Festival. It's not the most famous in uh, New York. I think it's the uh, St. Gennaro's uh, Festival. At any rate, it's, uh, um, it's, in, it's in the borough of uh, Williamsburg, which used to be um, exclusively Italian-American. And uh, um, over the years, of course, it's, there's been a lot of change, cultural diversity. And so now there's lots of Russians, there's lots of Hasidic Jews, um, there's lots of Puerto Ricans, and there's fewer and fewer Italians. But this is a site of their two-week festival. And what they, it's, it's, they brought it over during the uh, early 20th century uh, immigration from the Naples area. They brought the festival. It's a medieval. It goes all the way back to the seventh century. And it uh, tells the story of, uh, of a saint who um, frees his people from um, Turkish capture. They, on their arrival to the Italian shores, people greet them with lilies, and so the festival is called the Giglio, and it's based on this big, big six-story tower that weighs about four tons, um, and this, that includes a platform with a 12-piece band. 128 guys, Italian-Americans, lift this thing all, all day long in, in the heat of the sun. And they dance it. The whole idea is to sort of dance it. And they reenact the story of St. Paulinus freeing his people and returning to Italy. So at any rate, it's, uh, it's clearly the festival has nothing to do with that old story. They're not interested in that story, obviously. They're not even interested in the story that seemed to be current in Nola, the hometown for this uh, um, saints festival. Uh, and there it's all about the guilds who construct these beautiful, there's eight towers. There's only one in Brooklyn. At any rate, the story seems to be about marking space. And so they're trying to, uh, it's almost as if this is a giant pen or a magic marker and they're marking this space as Italian. Yeah. You know, and, and I think the, it's, there's more desperation every year with the sense of loss of Italianicity in the area. People are in Florida now that used to live in that town. Um, but it's fascinating is that this event really was a way of retelling a story, a story about the ethnicity of this little town and the way it's been contested by, um, by the sort of vast cultural change in America. Mm -hmm. Anything you'd like to add? Uh well, in bringing up place, you go right to the crisis of my composition, because the one impasse I reached at a certain point was Cuba, and what was I going to do about it? And I did actually go to Cuba in the summer of 2010. There are ways to go legally. I went on a humanitarian visa. So so Jay-Z, Beyonce, and myself, we all went legally. Yeah. Um, but I, I really did come to an impasse where I was wondering if I could put Cuba together with a pastiche of what I knew about Spain and other parts of Central America, and I really felt like I needed to get there. And we don't know what they did, so I made up a fake itinerary for myself <laughs> that becomes largely the itinerary of their trip, and I put them in the Hotel Ambas Mundus, which is the famous hotel that Hemingway wrote For Whom the Bell Tolls From, and I just thought that Scott would be unable to resist going there on some level with uh, their friendship and its brokenness at that stage of his life. 
And so then I just give, and I went and stayed in the Hotel Las Mundas. And so I'm able to feel, it's not 1939, obviously, although the old city of Cuba is the closest thing you can find to a time capsule. Um, so you can walk the streets, and I'll bet you most of those bricks are the same. And uh, <laughs> tourist guides were complaining about them back then. They still yeah. have all kinds of pipes and things that are uh, uh, obtruding into, in, into the walkways. But you can go and, you, uh, and, go and visit the La Floridita, the, the, the place where the daiquiri uh, was invented. And so I went to all those places. And that was the breakthrough for me. I was about halfway through the book, and I felt that Cuba had to become a little bit more real. And I was doing all kinds of research about Cuba, mm -hmm. but just being able to feel it spatially yeah. was an important imaginative breakthrough. Yeah. Oh, I wish we didn't have to end this segment. This is such fun. Thank you so much, Jeff Porter and Clifton Spargo. It's been just wonderful to talk with both of you. And I want to remind everybody who's listening or watching this program the names of the books we've been talking about here. Jeff's book is Oppenheimer is Watching Me. And uh, the book that Clifton Spargo has been speaking about is Beautiful Fools, The Last Affair of Zelda and Scott Fitzgerald. And by the way, there's a website where you can find out more about that. And it's beautifulfoolsthenovel.com. Uh, please join us next week when we'll continue our conversation on cultural memory and commemoration by looking at cultural memory as reflected in theater and music. World Canvas programming is available on UITV, on YouTube, iTunes, and the International Programs website. And uh, I'm Joan Kerr for International Programs. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. Hello and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. This is part two of a four-part series on cultural memory and commemoration. Throughout the series, we're looking at the phenomenon of cultural memory or collective memory and investigating ways in which groups narrate their own histories. Tonight, we'll continue with that thread but expand outward to the way communal groups publicly commemorate people and events that are important to their identities. So please let me introduce my guests for this uh, segment. I'm very happy to have you with us, Glenn Erstein, an associate professor in the UI Department of German and International Studies. Good to have you here. And next to him is Roberta Marvin, the director of the University of Iowa's Opera Studies Forum and former associate dean of international programs. So um, thanks for being here, both of you, on this chilly night. I think you are the perfect people to talk about this topic. Um, Glenn, you've spent years studying a centuries-long tradition, the passion play performed at uh, Oberammergau, and a religious and theatrical tradition we're going to spend some time talking about. And Roberta is a classical music scholar and a specialist on the music of Verdi. Um, I'm anxious to hear your insights on the uh, cultural impact music and musical masters can have on societies, you know, a century after their deaths. And Verdi's a good example of that, I think. So I'd like to start with you, Glenn. Um, could you just describe to us what the medieval passion play is and what importance it has held traditionally for Christians? Um, that's a large topic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> My work is predominantly in medieval um, theater, so both passion plays, religious theater in general, and also carnival plays uh, performed during Mardi Gras, uh, which is very, um, at times, unchristian, or certainly bawdy. Um, so Oberammergau is in many ways a, a, an exception or a, a contemporary excursion for me. Um, I'm fascinated by this as a, a living tradition um, that Technically, it, it has medieval roots. It's technically not a medieval tradition per se in that uh, the Passion Play is founded 
in the 17th century. It's really Baroque in its origins, but it harks back to earlier versions of uh, religious theater performed in Germany. One of the original play texts, or one of the bases for the play is a uh, surviving play text from Augsburg from the 15th century. Um, and what really fascinates me in, in the context of our uh, topic on commemoration uh, tonight is that how the play itself, um, to some degree, it's no longer just about commemorating uh, Christ's crucifixion, act of salvation, if you will, which really is um, at the heart of the passion plays. Um, the question is how best to, when... Um, Christ um, sort of charges uh, his followers with um, the act of commemoration by in breaking bed, taking communion. Um, there are questions as to how to appropriately um, represent that act, and this is uh, this is where opinions diverge. Um, if uh, passion plays no longer survive, it's because, among other things, Martin Luther and Protestants in general frowned on enactment and particularly impersonation of Christ as an appropriate way to commemorate that act. Um, and yet, in Oberammergau, in um, deepest, darkest Bavaria, if you will, um, this tradition continues, and um, it's, uh, it takes on dimensions now where it's not just about uh, commemorating Christ's act of salvation, but it's um, really about celebrating the community and um, living up to, not just living up to this vow that was taken uh, after the plague uh, came and visited over Amagal, this is supposedly the origins of the plague, where uh, the community, um, once they took the vow, uh, they no longer, there were no longer any death uh, that came about because of the plague in the community. You can actually go back into the historical record and say that, to show that actually indeed there seemed to have been some deaths that occurred after this vow was taken, but nonetheless this is a way of sort of celebrating community um, and perpetuating this tradition in a devotional context, uh, not necessarily in, uh, um, primarily a commercial context, but of course, um, the success of the Passion Play uh, as, a, uh, as a really, um, uh, you know, a huge cultural event has uh, funded a uh, um, sort of uh, communal uh, um, recreation center, a, a spa for the village inhabitants, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So there's certainly some commercial success behind this as well. Yeah, yeah, and I was reading a little bit about, about it, and uh, uh, various generations have approached it somewhat differently. I know there have been, um, there, there's been discussion of the representation of, uh, of Jews in the, um, in the Passion Play and a lot of discussion about uh, about that, what it what it means, and right. um, maybe you can tell us a little well, bit about what that um, the, um, if you will, the inherent problem of um, performing passion plays um, has to do, from a contemporary perspective, that um, depending on how you read the Gospels, um, the um, the perpetrators in the um, death of Christ um, were certainly Caiaphas in the Jewish High Council at the time. Um, you can simply take that as uh, these are individual actors. Certainly in the late Middle Ages, um, these actors were um, these uh, 
the, the members of the Jewish community were seen as a group that was responsible for Christ's death. And so there, there are all sorts of um, actually rather um, vile anti-Semitic and anti-Jewish components to uh, medieval passion plays. You have um, accusations at the time of ritual host desecration and um, ritual murder, which themselves often find their way into the theatrical tradition. You have a Croxton play of the Sacrament from England. You have uh, um, the mystery of the, um, the Holy Host in French. And um, so you sort of have anti um, Semitism built into the passion play tradition. And this is something that the members of the Oba Amagao um, community had been wrestling with for quite some time. Um, in a post-war context, um, this was something that they did not necessarily object to or um, were happy to gloss over, um, certainly in the, tw in the 20s um, and before that, but then uh, it's no accident that Adolf Hitler actually comes and visits Oba Amagao um, for the, I believe it was the 1930, no, um, I believe it's the 1933 performance, which they shifted a little bit, mm -hmm. uh, or 1934, which would have been uh, a special anniversary for the performance. Mm -hmm. So it continues now, it's 2014. It's not done every year, is it? It's every 10 years? Every 10 years, years? Yeah. yeah. And they moved, at some point, they, they started it in 1634, and then at some point they moved it to a 10 year cycle. Mm -hmm. So it happened in 2010. Uh, I was actually able to uh, visit with the generous support of the Stanley Foundation mm -hmm. and international programs. I was very <laughs> grateful for that. And um, again, it's, it's um, just sort of an odd juxtaposition to see what is ostensibly a medieval tradition uh, continuing to be performed and quite successfully mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, and so you, as you mentioned, it's now quite a sort of a business venture too, the whole it, community It is, part. and perhaps um, Continuing with the topic mm. of um, anti-Jewish elements in the play, um, certainly in the contemporary context, the community is um, well aware of these issues. Um, even following Vatican II in the for the 1970 performance and moving forward, um, the Catholic Church itself was uh, working towards ecumenical ends and objected, took issue with elements of the play text and consciously pushed the rather conservative uh, community to work towards some, um, some reform of the play text. Um, this, that charge has actually been, been taken up um, and embraced enthusiastically by a younger, younger generation of performers. Um, in, for the 1990 performance, the youngest director of the play in the play's history was elected. Um, the city council uh, or village council has to more or less approve the, um, the main, uh, the director, um, the music uh, composer, um, all elements of the performance really are approved by the, the city council. And they elected uh, Christian Stuckel, who uh, was something like 25, in his 20s at the time, he was the youngest director in the history of the play. And um, he worked actively to reconfigured the, um, the portrayal of Christ, eliminating anti-Jewish elements and actually trying to restore the, um, what was really the original Passover meal that was celebrated by um, Christ and his disciples um, during the Last Supper. Mm -hmm. So you actually get Hebrew prayers spoken on stage. So as an historian, are you surprised that this still continues as it does? Um, 
Part of me is, yes, mm -hmm. quite a bit. Um, I find it engages um, interesting questions of, one, the perception of um, the Middle Ages, uh, ideas of authenticity, what is authentic. Um, the, you know, I mentioned that the, um, the, the community does not, the, the community makes plenty of money on the play, although they spend a lot of money on the play as well. So um, one of the controversial decisions of this young uh, playwright was that he wanted to completely upgrade uh, the, the costumes and the, the set design, et cetera. He brought in for the um, 2000 performance Robert Wilson to d design uh, some additional uh, performance pieces and artwork uh, that um, was sort of supplemental to the actual play itself. Um, and he's, um, he spares no expense for the expense of the play. They, they bring in authentic uh, materials from, from Israel. They, um, they actually took the, uh, the um, cast on a, a trip to the Holy Land and Israel to actually kind of get them uh, prepared for their roles. Um, so the, uh, there's, there's constant dispute over how much money should be spent on the play and some of the more conservative members of the community are not thrilled that there's this young, somewhat progressive director who yeah. wants to take the play in, in new directions. Yeah. Oh, thanks for starting us off with that. And, and now I want to flip over to you, Roberta, and talk a little bit about Verdi and um, his influence musically and also culturally in Italy and beyond. But we've just celebrated the 200th anniversary. We have. We um, are just coming off of 2013, and that was a year that saw the bicentenary celebrations for the birth of Giuseppe Verdi and also for Richard Wagner. And if you have managed to stay in the limelight for 200 years, you get your very own encyclopedia. <laughs> the Wagner Encyclopedia, which is hot off the press, and the Verdi Encyclopedia. <laughs> so um, the other composer whose anniversary we celebrated in 2013 was Benjamin Britten. He was born in 1913. So he doesn't have his own encyclopedia yet <laughs> uh, because it's only 100 years. But I think that, that this idea of composer anniversaries really gives us all an opportunity to reflect on just what Joan's asking about. And since I know more about Verdi, um, I will tell you about him. Um, it will come as no surprise to those of you who are opera buffs that Verdi really is and always has been since 1842 in his first really successful opera, a very important part of Italian culture. And people tend to remember him for various reasons. He was not only a great composer, but he was quite a philanthropist. And many of you may have seen the movie that came out that Dustin Hoffman directed, which was based on one of Verdi's philanthropic activity, activities. It was called Quartet, but it's based on, on the idea of the home that he built for retired musicians called the Casa di Riposo. Um, it was also the subject of another film called Tosca's Kiss that came out several years back, back in the 80s. Um, he also built another, another hospital uh, in the province where he lived. He's also known for his uh, professional activities for supporting the musicians of his day and some of the reforms that he enacted, both in terms of educating musicians and in terms of uh, theater conditions, employment conditions, uh, still are in effect today. And he's also known for his political activities. And this has uh, 
given us quite a bit to talk about in recent years. Uh, many people feel that his operas were very much a banner for the um, liberation of Italy from Austrian domination as well as important to the cause of unification and independence for Italy in the 1860s. Other scholars say no, that this was just part of the culture of the time. So uh, there's, there's quite a bit going on with that these days. But Verdi is so very much a part of, of the culture still today. I think it's not, not surprising. Um, he became pretty much the dominant composer by the time he died in 1901. Um, when he died, it was really a media event, or so we would consider it that way today. Uh, he front page headlines, uh, La Morte di Giuseppe Verdi, and all of the major newspapers in Italy. And for his funeral in the city of Milan, 300,000 people showed up on the streets. So that just gives you some idea of how he pervaded uh, the society. He still does today. Whereas every city in the United States may have a main street, every city or town in Italy has a Via Verdi, a Verdi street. Um, so this is just how ingrained he is in the culture. Um, one of the interesting uh, blogs that one of my colleagues wrote uh, for the Verdi Bicentenary questioned whether we really needed to celebrate this. Um, because composer anniversaries are important milestones for the reception of composers' works. Well, Verdi's are still in the repertory. They're performed all the time, all over the world, every major opera house and every minor opera house. Um, and we can have Verdi at our beck and call, DVDs and CDs. Um, so we can remember Verdi whenever we wish to remember Verdi. Mm -hmm. Yet the institutionalization of these commemorations seems to be something that's important. Um, both in terms of, of Wagner and of Verdi this year, there were hundreds and hundreds of performances. Um, there were exhibitions. There were conferences. Um, more for Wagner than for Verdi. And the reason for that is that in 2001, we commemorated the centenary of Verdi's death. And that was when everyone went all out because we knew we had the chance and it seemed to be the, the time at the turn of the millennium to really do something. So we kind of lost our energy. And by the time 2013 came around, we had already done so much. But for Wagner and certainly for Britain, uh, there's been a number of things. I, I visited one website recently where they listed just for January to July of 2014, now that we're in a year after, 450 events worldwide for Britain during a six-month period in the year after the centenary. So these composers become very important, I think, in, in terms of that. But it occurred to me as I was thinking about this program tonight that, that in a way, because of music, we're we're remembering, we're commemorating composers all the time just by performing their works, which is very different, I think, from certain other kinds of activities right. that right. happen. So. Right. And, but then uh, the other part of our title tonight, this cultural memory idea, um, that Verdi connected to the Italian cultural memory is still, is still very... That's still real. Still very, very real, um, both for elite culture and for mass culture. Yeah. Um, 
Um, Verdi's music is used in every possible way. Um, it may be, sound cliche, but you can walk the streets of an Italian city, Venice is the one that comes to mind, and you will hear people singing in their windows when they're open. And quite often you will hear a Verdi melody coming out of, out of there. Um, it was a surprise to me. I had no idea that it pervaded quite that much. Excuse um, me for interrupting, but have you seen the Woody Allen film? Um, Rome, uh, Rome, Rome in Love, I've forgotten what it is, but the Woody Allen film that his most recent one before oh, Blue Jasmine is, right. is actually, it picks up on this theme of an average guy singing Verdi and going big place. <laughs> <laughs> and you also mentioned Toscanini and uh, some, some things that happened around uh, World War I. Right. Um, I have a book coming out this spring called The Politics of Verdi's Cantica. And this is actually the, the title that he gave to a work that we know better in English as Hymn of the Nations, or Inno delle Nazioni in Italian. Um, it, it's a work that, it's not an operatic work, but it's a work that has served a very, very important purpose um, in, in the 20th century um, and in the 19th century in terms of bridging chronological periods, bridging American and Italian culture, uh, keeping this idea of uh, the Italian historical memory very much in the forefront during World War II. This is a work that Verdi was commissioned to compose in 1862 for the London International Exhibition. There was to be a concert with great composers from Western European nations, um, and he was asked to compose this particular piece. It's a cantata. And there was a huge scandal surrounding it. It was not performed. It was rejected by the commission, people who commissioned it uh, because he handed it in late um, <laughs> and because he didn't write in the genre that they asked him to write in. They wanted him to write a march, kind of a stupid thing to ask a, an opera composer to do. And he wanted to write a texted piece, so he did. This piece was seen at the time to represent the newly unified and independent Italy. 1862, Italy achieves its independence in 1861. Um, and it was very, very important for Italy to be seen in the international arena. So the piece kind of caused an international scandal when people heard that this great Italian composer and Italy had had the music rejected. The piece did get performed, but then kind of fell into oblivion. In 1915, Toscanini resurrected it during World War I for a large uh, concert in the arena in Milan and used it along with several of other Verdi's works, excerpts from operas, to make political statements. Where it really gained some power in terms of cultural memory was in World War II. Toscanini was known for his concerts uh, for the Russian cause, uh, to play great Austrian and German masters to let people know that, look, there's good music, there's good stuff coming out of here, and for giving voice to his Italian um, compatriots. So he took this piece and he used it building on the memory of what was known at the time about when Verdi had composed it and used it in a broadcast that was sent all over the world through uh, National, Public, uh, National Broadcasting Company. Um, for a concert in January 1943. This got so much attention, both in the United States 
and in Italy and in other countries that the Office of War Information approached Toscanini and said, will you make a film for us using this piece so that we can broadcast it in Italy and say, look at what a wonderful country we are. All of these Italian people, we support them. We bring you, Toscanini, here, and you have success. We are friendly to Italy. We're, we're, we're doing the right kinds of things here for the people who need us to help them. The interesting thing about this particular piece is that Verdi intended none of this, but what the media does when they get in on this during World War II is they build it into this enormously powerful piece that has these connotations for 1862, when Italians were just free of, of, of uh, oppression, and 1943, when they were fighting to be free of that oppression. And the rhetoric and the, the, the narrative that surrounds this piece is nothing short of amazing. But the real important thing, I think, in terms of cultural memory and what that actually means is that it's building very much on history as it was remembered in 1943, not necessarily history as it happened. And I think that's a very important thing. I was listening to the, the previous segment from last week, and, and the idea of, of memory and forgetting, this idea of selective memory, or memory that has been uh, kind of formed by what people want you to believe, by the, 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 the mediators, the historians, the biographers, the journalists, mm -hmm. the other commentators mm -hmm. who do that. And, and so Toscanini, as an equally important cultural hero for Italy in the 20th century, taking Verdi and then making him into a modern kind of uh, uh, cultural patriot, if mm -hmm. you will, for an important cause. Yeah. So you've, you've got multiple layers, I think, in terms of the both the commemoration and the cultural memory yeah. going on. Yeah, fascinating. Do you have any uh, concluding things you might like to well, say? Well, um, I also wanted to pick up on the topic of forgetting, which we discussed in the previous segment, and just mention that um, Oba Amagao is um, is within Germany, even within Catholic Germany, um, unusual um, in perpetuating this tradition. Um, certainly wherever um, the Reformation took hold uh, and in Protestant regions uh, throughout Germany, all of these towns had some form of Catholic theater in the late Middle Ages. And I have personally encountered working on um, various different traditions. Um, you know, for example, um, in the small town of Kunzelsau, which is in um, the northern, northeastern part of Baden-Württemberg, um, you can actually show that a reliquary cross with a piece of the true, assumed piece of the true cross was displayed in place of the crucifixion and yet you still had actors in, in costume um, portraying Christ sort of surrounding this in a procession through the town, the use of space, um, mm -hmm. guilds performing there as well. And um, yet, because this town is now fairly conservatively Lutheran, no one really wants to talk about this. Mm -hmm. And it's not, I mean, it's, it's one of a kind. Um, it would, in some ways, put this town on a map, at least for a, a handful of scholars. <laughs> but um, this is not something that the town necessarily is comfortable yeah. with. And you have similar um, issues regarding um, efforts to put on a passion play in Worms, which is actually also mm -hmm. a Protestant community. And they're also justifiably concerned about what they might be recreating in putting, re-performing a passion play like that. Yeah. 
Wow. Well, thank you so much. This has been so interesting. Roberta Marvin and Glenn Erstein, thanks for being with us. Um, I want to say thank you also to those of you who joined us here this afternoon, and I hope you'll join us next week when we'll be discussing cultural memory and commemoration as related to the Third Reich and the Holocaust. World Campus programming is available on UITV, on YouTube, iTunes, KRUI, and the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. I'm Joan Kerr. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr. In this World Canvas series, we're talking about the phenomenon of cultural memory collective memory and investigating ways in which groups narrate their own histories. We'll be taking a moment with historian Lisa Heinemann and uh, we'll be focusing on the Third Reich and the Holocaust, examining cultural memory through competing narratives and seeing how various groups commemorate the events and tragedies of that time. Lisa Heinemann is a professor of history at the University of Iowa and I want to thank you for being here, Lisa. Great to have you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So you've heard the earlier discussions about cultural memory and commemoration. Um, how do we begin to understand cultural memory in respect to something as grand and uh, sort of incredible, really, as the history of the Third Reich right. and the Holocaust? It's, it's a huge subject, and um, probably the, the most difficult thing to grapple with is, in a way, how many moving parts there are. Um, the Second World War and the Holocaust, in particular, took part uh, took took place over an enormous geographic space. Um, they affected directly and indirectly an enormous number of countries. Each country had its own positioning. There were aggressors. There were collaborationist states. There were uh, states that were were uh, militarily invaded. There were states that had large numbers of certain victim groups, such as Jews. There were states that had multiple different victim groups. That's moving part number one. It's just the number of different places that are involved in the event itself. Memory, of course, happens. It's memory starts during the event, but memory really happens, especially, and develops after the event. So the post-World War II setting is very important, too. And here, again, there are a lot of moving parts. Um, after the Second World War, Europe is divided by the Cold War. East Europe, uh, Eastern Europe, communist states, and Western Europe, more liberal democratic states, have different kind of imperatives and different agendas in commemorating World War II and the Holocaust in remembering the events of Nazi Germany. Um, that's number two. Then things change over time. Of course, the decades go by. The Cold War ends. Um, Events in other parts of the world matter a great deal. The State of Israel is formed in 1948. It starts out as a very small, tenuous state, eventually becomes a regional superpower, and that has an enormous impact on, on what memory of the Holocaust is going to mean to the Middle East. Uh, there are a, a varying cast of characters here in the immediate post-World War II period. Um, you have a lot of survivors, a lot of people who are direct perpetrators, very much around, very active in society, in some places living still in very close quarters, you know, neck to neck with each other. Um, so that's one environment for memory. A few decades later, um, 
the, the culture is determined more by their own children or more generally the children's generation. Um, new voices come into play, not necessarily just generational, but for example, in the early decades after World War II, um, there was very little said about the Nazi persecution of homosexuals because there was, there were, it was dangerous to be out of the closet. Um, Same-sex activity is still illegal in most places in the 1950s. You eventually, several decades later, later get the gay liberation movement, and that then brings about a whole, a whole new, uh, new area of commemoration, commemorating the persecution of homosexuals. There are um, different locations of commemoration, not just geographic locations, but sort of fields of commemoration. There's building museums, there's building monuments, there's literature and film. There's family stories, much more informal stuff going on. Um, there's, there's legislation, right? States pass laws to maybe financially compensate um, victims of persecution or to financially compensate war veterans, some of whom may have been perpetrators. Um, there's changing aesthetics, right? The, if you're thinking about, let's say, a single genre such as film or literature, the aesthetics of the 1950s are very different than the aesthetics of the early 21st century. So there's an awful lot going on. Um, and um, it's, it's a very fascinating field of study and has um, provided um, real ground for thought, not just about those historical events, but also has helped us to think about how to think about memory more generally, and often provided very interesting sort of models that have been useful to people thinking about memory in other contexts as well. Mm-hmm. Well, if, if we were to think about, um, take it from the state perspective for just a moment, it seems to me that there are probably a few um, um, uh, national, uh, you know, states that documented things as well as the Nazis did, uh, had a propaganda machine, mm-hmm. thinking back into the 40s. At that time, their propaganda machine, creating the stories they wanted to have told, right. um, uh, keeping track of everything, but but still trying to um, make sure that they told various publics certain mm-hmm. kinds of things. I mean, this was, it seems not to have been accidental. It seems to be very purposeful, and there, there were certain elements, I imagine, of... Um, what was actually happening that leadership would have preferred uh, stay out of any kind of collective memory or uh, they perhaps would shape it in a way so that something that looked like one thing became something else yes. in the description of, of the state. Um, what, what, do we, what do we say about that when uh, Nazism is defeated, we're, we're now in a new era after 1945, obviously Germans have to come to terms with whatever their own personal and familial involvements may have been, or uh, whatever they felt about their own nation during that prior 12 or 15 year period. But um, there, there was sort of the official story during the Nazi uh, reign, yeah. and then many, many things have to be you know, dismantled. Many thoughts yes. need to be yeah. uh, uh, dismembered, dismantled, and mm-hmm. people begin to learn a different kind of truth. Yeah. Well, it's true. I mean, the the Nazi government was 
very aware of itself in history and very aware that later on people would be writing its histories. Of course, they f were hoping that they'd be in a position to write their own histories and to sort of maintain control of memory in a way, but you lose a war, you sort of lose that control. Um, but there is um, there's a, a very famous speech by Heinrich Himmler, who was the head of the police, uh, the policing system, including the SS, which was um, possibly the single most important um, institution in, um, in the genocide, particularly in Eastern Europe. Um, and this is a very famous speech where he's talking to the SS elite and saying in so many words, this is a chapter of history that will never be written, but we know how important this task is. We know that this is, that, that is the genocide against the Jews. We know that this must be done, and we know that we're doing this right and important thing, but it will never be written. Um, so they're very aware um, of, in a sense, what they understand as the importance of their historical legacy, but also that it's going to be a tricky legacy. And of course, realize he's saying that in an environment in which he thinks they're going to win. Yeah. yeah. Um, never mind yeah. Um, what happens when they start realizing they're not going to um, win. And of course, towards the end of the war, there's an enormous destruction of records, mm -hmm. um, uh, raising of the sites of, of the death camps, for example, with the military retreat. Sites get completely raised. Um, files get burned, files get, you know, they don't get sent to the shredder, they get burned, that's what they did at the time. Um, so there's an enormous destruction of records in an attempt to control what's accessible. With the, the development of memory, of course, happens in a sense, in a very kind of a breakneck way, because it's happening during the last stages of the war from both Eastern Europe, the Soviets, and then Western Europe, really the British and the Americans, are coming in and even during the war, they're engaged in discovering things that they hadn't expected to see. The Soviets liberate Auschwitz, um, the British liberate Bergen-Belsen. You know, every country has its moment of liberating a concentration camp or a death camp that becomes part of its memory of its activity in liberation. Um, but this is while this war is still on. Um, so, and, and, and it's not at all clear that the final stages of the war are going to be easy or without enormous human cost. So um, in the midst of these last stages of the war, there's already a kind of a, you know, how can we document, um, what is the importance of documenting what we're seeing as we go into camps. At the same time, the people doing this work you know, aren't sitting in libraries. They're not sitting in comfortable circumstances at all. They're fighting a war. They themselves are in a very difficult circumstance, and the emotional impact to them of first setting foot in these places is enormous. So they're doing it also under an enormous um, sort of personal strain. As time goes on, of course, the allies, the, the uh, occupying allies across Germany, the Soviets in the East and the British and the Americans and the French in the West, try to shape memory. And, they're, and part of that is they're trying to educate Germans to whatever they're hoping they'll be in the post-war world, in something that's going to work out. Um, there are tensions between the Soviets and the Western Allies, but it's not 100% clear what direction the Cold War is going to take. So again, there's a lot that's in flux. Um, but on both sides, the um, military occupation is initially very important in trying to shape memory. 
um, trying to make sure the German civilians and demobilized German military personnel are getting certain messages, um, and they're, they're trying to disseminate memory back home. For the Soviets, for example, um, the, the business of having defeated fascism and the incredible military might of Nazi Germany, this was a big struggle for the Soviets, enormous human costs, and it was very important in post-war Soviet Union to remember this great victory. It was politically important in sort of helping to prop up Stalin. I mean, it's a kind of a, 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 a kind of an instrumental use politically, but also a very deep personal um, importance to Soviet citizens who had lost enormous amounts. Um, so this business of creating memories in locations where the history hadn't necessarily actually happened. Americans create memories of a war that didn't happen on their own territory. That has to do with a sort of an importation. Memories get imported, mm -hmm. exported to the, the, the to mandate Palestine and then the state of mm -hmm. Israel. Mm -hmm. So indeed, there's a lot going on with the number of characters involved here and then the geopolitics yeah. of the post-World War II era. Well, and as you know, in uh, other segments of this program, we've been talking about remembering and forgetting. There's yes. the remembering, and then there's the stuff that you forget. Yeah. And uh, Jeff Porter made a point in a piece he wrote for the paper about tonight's uh, topic that um, uh, they, if, if we could remember every single detail, mm -hmm. um, and the, the poor people who are savants who, who do in fact recall every single thing that mm -hmm. ever happened in their lives, and they, you kind of just can't handle it all, there is a... a maybe a conscious choice sometimes we make and uh, an unconscious choice perhaps mm -hmm. to, to let some things go and to keep other things close. I think most of us are familiar that um, uh, many, uh, many uh, Jews will say, you know, we must never forget uh, this could happen again, the, the terror, the tragedy, the fact that we have to stand up against this kind of brutality. But, um, but in order to live one's life, there are things you, you need to set mm -hmm. aside and try to look forward. You have talked to, to many people who lived through this era, mm -hmm. and your research has touched on a lot of personal stories. Mm -hmm. um, could you give us a little insight into how people move ahead from something yeah. as yeah. terrible as this? You know, there have been enormous projects to collect documentation of both survivors and you know, people who fall into the class, you know, survivors and perpetrators and bystanders, enormous oral history projects. We have so many interviews, um, videotaped and audio interviews, and um, not surprisingly, people have very different personal strategies for dealing with this. So if we stay with, um, um, with let's say, survivors, um, uh, either racial or political um, persecutees or people persecuted on account of sexual orientation or any of the other categories, um, but certainly Jewish survivors, there's an enormous documentation of that. Um, and there's a range of sort of personal responses that people have to how do I integrate this experience yet go on with my life. One important response is to refuse to get into the whole interviewing business. Mm -hmm. Many survivors say, no, I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. um, let somebody else do it. I don't want to. Um, my strategy is not to do that. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean they're not talking about it at all. They might be talking about it with their families. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but they might not want to be part of somehow this collective project, particularly as they see in some cases, um, some survivors might be you know, the, troubled by the way a particular oral history project is maybe taking a certain direction, um, or you know, some survivors are troubled by what seems sometimes to be a kind of a politicization of their ex um, experience um, for, for getting involved in other contemporary debates. Um, some survivors feel that's very useful. They want their experience to be recorded and remembered and made relevant to something that maybe hadn't even existed in the 1940s. So people have very different personal responses to how to, how to balance that. Um, Certainly, one early um, kind of response was to, to think in much more close, narrow terms. What do we want to tell our children? You know, they're not necessarily thinking about, about, about big oral history projects or the recording of history, but the first question is, what do we want to tell our children? Okay, and that's, that's in many ways the, the first thing that, that people would have to confront. Very, exactly the same thing we might say on the perpetrator side, right? right. And again, you talked earlier right. about sort of Germans having to come to terms with their past, and of course they're largely the, 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 the perpetrator population. Um, what are they going to tell their kids about what they were doing in the war? Um, that's a very difficult personal decision, and that's, that's where it starts before we even get to these kinds of larger social issues. Yeah, because one, one could imagine um, a, a, a country, the, the newly formed um, democratic Germany, you know, saying, you know, making a statement, a uh, sorrowful statement about what had happened and, you know, mm -hmm. we're a different country, we're moving toward a different future and so on. Uh, but but what, what did you do during the war mm -hmm. when that comes from a grandchild or from a, from yeah. a child? That's, that's a different kind of question. It takes a different kind of response. Um, yes. Yes. When we think about the idea of commemoration, you mentioned memorials and, and museums, and we know that these um, exist. Uh, could you give some examples of how some of the most affected countries during that uh, period are, are looking now? What is it, next year's? Uh, how many years is that? Um, mm -hmm. After 1945, we're yeah. 60 years yeah. after, the end, after of the, war. the end of the war. And um, exactly. are there exactly. yearly commemorations of uh, the end of World War II in Europe, yeah. for example? Yes, there are, you know, VE Day, Victory yeah. in Europe Day, um, you know, the, uh, in, in some locations in the Soviet Union and in mm. Russia, there's, there's a march every year mm. on the day. It's, it's, it's a very important activity, uh, important you know, commemorative moment. Um, Museums in different places have taken very different approaches to this, as you can imagine, throughout history, because museums are, first of all, responsible to speaking to their local populations. Um, but they're also constrained by political pressures. And a wonderful example of this is what happens in post-war Germany with the division between East and West, um, where Western memorials um, first of all, all around, you know, throughout Germany, their main audience are Germans. There aren't very many Jews to, to go to these memorials. That's not their primary audience. But Germany is a pretty tenuous place after the war, and they're both actually, you know, they're, they're economically struggling. Mm -hmm. They have real challenges domestically, um, and figuring out how to manage memory is going to be part of dealing with their economic challenges and their political challenges and so on. Um, East German memorial sites during the communist era um, 
tended to emphasize um, the Nazis' attack on communists mm -hmm. as, as, a, as a political victim group, and they tended to emphasize communist heroism in beating back the Nazis and resisting the Nazis. Um, they didn't tend to say very much, if anything, about Jews. Western memorials tended to say a great deal about Jews as kind of a liberal state where notions like freedom of religion, you know, lack of racial persecution, that kind of individual rights um, is very important. And so this business of, of um, persecution on the grounds of race or religion is central to post-war West Germany's reconstitution of itself. So there's an enormous emphasis there on persecution of the Jews, but they're not going to talk very much about heroic communists because this is West Germany and the Cold War is on. So communists are completely invisible from that story. And of course, after the end of the Cold War, all of that has to get rethought. Um, if you take yourself to a place like Poland, okay, there you don't really have to think so much about perpetrators, or at least in terms of speaking to your population, the population there is um, largely ethnic Poles who themselves were very, very much victimized by Nazi military aggression. Um, at the same time, Poland was the geographic location of the death camps. Yes. Um, so there's a special, so the sites, sites like Auschwitz and Treblinka and Sobibar are in Poland. So they end up with this, this need to talk about the Jewish, um, Jewish losses and persecution of the Jews at the same time. They, their, their own population, in fact, was terribly victimized by the war, both by the Soviets and by the Nazis. So again, a different kind of memorialization through museums and monuments is going to grow up in a culture, in, in a place like that. Mm. I could go on and on. You know, think about Israel, the United States, sure. England, France, every place has its own story and yeah. its own post-war population to talk to. Yeah, well in, in a place like France where, where there was yeah. such a division between the Vichy government and right. the, the pre-French, um, what, do, what do they do and what was that history like just after the end of the, the yeah. war? I know that may not be your specialty yeah. area, but... Well in France what was most important um, was to identify as, as, uh, as part of the resistance, uh -huh. okay, because France was largely occupied, part of it was occupied, part of it was a collaborationist state, eventually it was all occupied. Um, and France didn't have much to be proud of in terms of its military performance in the war. Um, you know, they folded in six weeks. Um, so this notion of um, Friend, the French resistance becomes very, very important to how the post-war French think about it. Um, and there's very little talk about the fact that, in fact, um, France is full of collaborators as well. Of course, it is a collaborationist state, um, and, and, and they are, you know, French policing um, is responsible for sending a lot of Jews further east to death camps, but this is not a helpful way to formulate a positive post-war French national identity. Mm -hmm. So that's very hard to talk about, and it's only several decades later that the French come to those discussions about their own collaborationist mm -hmm. past. Hmm. Wow. So, you know, um, this is all still fairly fresh for, for many of us in this room, many mm -hmm. people watching this program, uh, going back I guess it's 70 years, isn't it, to the yeah. end of the war. Yeah. Um, uh, that still feels like fairly fresh memory. A mm -hmm. hundred years on from now, um, do you think historians and, and those studying history will see the events of this, this period um, uh, with the same kind of 
shock and horror and terror that we do or I mean you never know what will come next God knows yeah. we could face even even yeah. worse yeah. things and some may think we are now mm -hmm. but um, you know as, as time goes on mm -hmm. are some of these horrible episodes in history sort of forgotten they absolutely are absolutely are and the Holocaust is not likely to be forgotten simply because it in the meantime so much documentation has been made and so much culture has been produced around it. it's not going to be forgotten yeah. but certainly the immediacy of it yeah. um, is going to change you, know, you can turn back several centuries and think of let's say you know massacres from let's say the era of the Crusades mm -hmm. that were completely you know gut-wrenching and nobody 20 30 40 yeah. 50 years later could possibly think about with any them with anything but horror and we don't even know about them anymore. Yeah, um, so you know, as 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 the immediacy fades, and people face other crises in their mm -hmm. life, and they face new atrocities mm -hmm. that do seem more immediate, um, people turn their attention to what's most immediate and most pressing. Mm -hmm. um, so these things do get rethought and re yeah. re remembered in different ways. Oh, thank you, Lisa. So okay. wonderful to talk with you about this. Uh, thank you. You've been listening to uh, Lisa Heinemann, and this is the third part of our series on cultural memory and commemoration. And uh, glad you could join us for this talk this afternoon. Um, unfortunately, we do have to end this segment, but I want to remind you that World Canvas programming is available on UITV, YouTube, iTunes, KRUI, and the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. We have one more uh, program in this series where we'll be talking about uh, alternative histories and counter memorials. We hope you can join us for that. I'm Joan Kerr. Thanks very much for watching. Hello and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr and we're in the Senate Chamber of the Old Capitol Museum. Very happy to have you with us for this uh, fourth part in our four-part series on cultural memory and commemoration. Tonight we'll examine cultural memory and commemoration by looking beyond the official story at alternative narratives representing alternative historical readings of events and at something called counter-memorials. My guests tonight are Jen Shook, just next to me here, a graduate student in the UI Department of English who's also connected with the uh, Center for the Book. Nice to have you here, Jen. Thanks. Thank you. Next to her is Sarah Canoos, and Sarah teaches in the UI School of Art and Art History in the area of media, social practice, and design. Nice to see you again. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you know, in the first segment of this program, I asked the question, what and why do we remember? And, you know, I think that's a good question for this segment as well, because we're talking about alternative histories, counter memorials. Uh, some people remember things one way, others remember them another way, or perhaps they haven't officially remembered them and uh, and there are those in the world who would like to to see um, some discussion arise around things that may have been forgotten in general by the public so before we talk about counter memorials um, let's talk a little bit about memorials who creates them why are they created uh, what do they celebrate who wants to jump in sure I, I can start so um, we have that phrase history is written by the victors and for the most part monuments are also erected by them um, in large part to shore up the victory, to celebrate the heroic acts of the generals, um, and to convince whatever vanquished people that these folks are worthy of memorializing, worthy of their power, and all of that. Um, but things don't always go as planned, right? And monuments change their, their meaning over time through um, people interacting with them. And so um, very often those monuments that are erected are um, 
challenged and contested in various ways by people around them. A really good example of this uh, would be the Haymarket Police Monument in Chicago um, following the Haymarket Square event in 1886, which involved a bombing, a bomb going off at a political rally, um, the execution of a number of anarchist organizers and one of our original Red Scares. Um, the police department erected a heroic monument to the police who were killed. This monument was bombed by activists so many times that it eventually had to be removed from public view and back into the police um, station. So there was already, you know, with official monuments, an act of dialogue and challenge that percolates up from below. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The Haymarket example is such a, a good, rich one to start with because um, there also is another uh, Haymarket memorial that was erected in a cemetery that um, a large number of public memory rituals and commemoration um, practices grew up around that particular mm -hmm. statue. So there's this question of what is forgotten, there's the question of what did the memory mean to the, mm -hmm. we often say that monuments tell you more about the people who make them than the thing that they're supposed to be about. Mm -hmm. Memories tell more about the person remembering than the thing remembered often. Mm -hmm. Um, but then there's this question of how they change over time, how people use them, how people connect and um, gather around them, how people question them. Um, and of course, another terrific example of the rise of a somewhat official but still uh, counter memorial in many ways is Maya Lin's Vietnam Veterans Memorial Wall, um, which was built in 1982 and immediately questioned in many, many ways. But one of the things that um, fascinates me about the wall is the way that people's practices make much of what we think about it. If I think about the wall, the first time that I went there, I was watching how people behaved, not just looking at it like you look at a statue mm -hmm. or a painting or even the way you would read a book or a work of history, but wanting to see how people interacted with it and this concept that part of being there is uh, making a rubbing of the name or part of being there is leaving something. Mm -hmm. So there have been tens of thousands of things now left at the wall, which now in a sense are a part of that monument. So they so quickly and in so many different ways become so much more than what the original intention may have been. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Are there other examples of a, of a memorial in the, that has been put together in the last few years that you think gets to that same kind of sort of interactive element that you have with the Myelin uh, Memorial? Can, can you think of any other? Uh, recent official uh, memorials, yeah, or I, yeah. I can think of a lot of unofficial yeah. <laughs> <laughs> memorials that have have that um, built built into them, um, mm -hmm. and many of them are quite are you know quite oppositional and have, um, and have only sort of more recently become integrated into the fabric of of the society that they originate from. So one of one of the things that I, as an artist and an activist, um, look to a lot is the movement, the Madres, the Plaza de Mayo, in Argentina. Um, and these were women who, whose children were disappeared um, by the military dictatorship. And in a country where there was no political protest available to them, they used their mourning, their acts of mourning, as a form of protest. They embroidered baby clothes, baby um, blankets with the names of their loved ones who were killed, put them on 
as a kerchief, one of the grandmother's kerchief, and then just simply walked and paced. And from there was born a political movement that helped to topple the dictatorship, right? Mm -hmm. So that is a form of bottom-up commemoration that actually ha you know, is, is, is unseating the victors rather yeah. than sort of edifying them. Yeah. Yeah, incredible. Um, so um, when we think about cultural memory, the, the memorials, you go, you go to any, um, oh, think of a city that has a, wonder, a lot of wonderful statues on them. You know, you can, I, I know if you go to England or someplace, uh, that's it's not my native home, and so I'll see a statue of someone whose name would probably mean something to at least an English historian, but it's not anything that resonates with me. And, you know, I would look at it probably for whatever artistic value I thought there was in it or the pose or something, but I wouldn't carry any story with me related to that statue, um, which doesn't make it, you know, invalid in any way. It's just not meaningful mm -hmm. to me. Um, why, why, do, why do we build such things? Right, that's one of the great questions is what do you want a monument or memorial or any work of art or literature to do? Mm -hmm. And if you want it to constantly remind you that becomes a problem after a while because we don't naturally constantly remember things, particularly difficult moments of our past. So the, the traditional monuments built by the victors, the big stone obelisks, if we think of things like um, early war monuments before World War I, before they really even were faces, but they were great stones that said, you know, something heroic happened on this date. Mm -hmm. um, those were, we didn't have to think about them. That was the whole point, mm -hmm. is that they were already, their work is to um, make us um, all agree and say, yes, that was a great moment in history, mm -hmm. right? Whereas some of these alternative bottom-up monuments and memorials um, that have happened within the past few decades or so in what the scholar Erica Doss has called memorial mania. Um, she actually dates it back in some sense to 2001, but it, many people can easily date it back to myelin. And frankly, many of the practices go back even farther than that, the way that often very contemporary um, artists who work in things like fragmentation are drawing upon really early forms like classical odes where you have whole lists of names, right? Like the names on the wall, the names in the AIDS memorial quilts, which is another favorite example of mine, um, of a bottom-up of people saying, well, but what about us? We're not included in the major story, mm -hmm. so how do we get included? And much like the mothers of the Plaza del Mayo, um, drawing upon an old traditional form, a really domestic, in some ways, not only not official, but maybe even a little um, old-fashioned form quilting, but Cleve Jones, who initially got the idea for the Names Foundation Memorial Quilt, said, I knew it had to be a quilt because there would be some sort of equality of the pieces and the people remembered, but it also would allow people to come together to make it. So then you start getting at these questions of who is the artist, not only who gets a say in the decision of how is it built and whose names are on it and where does it go, but who gets to actually pitch in and make it? Mm -hmm. Who gets to actually be a part of it? And then is it over at some point? And you say there that thing has been remembered, therefore 
we no longer have to think about it anymore? Or do you say, as people say with the quilts, no, the work is actually to keep remembering mm -hmm. this thing because it's still affecting lives today. Mm -hmm. um, and it will keep affecting. And there, there actually is a square that is meant to be the last square of the quilt. Really? Um, there's a documentary film being made about it right now that mm. has not been put in yet. Yeah. But the hope that the people who work on, on the quilt is that someday this last panel will be able to be sewn in. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know, I, I work myself a lot with uh, native memory and hear people saying, you know, it's on the basic level of naming and language. What do you even call a site? Mm -hmm. So the difference between making the Custer battlefield site, the little bighorn site, and the difference between thinking about that as a celebrational place or a place that consolidates people through symbols versus a place where people go and continually ask questions and really resist closure, resist the end of the story, but keep, you know, resisting a kind of Freudian grieving that mm -hmm. it can be over and done with ever, but saying it's not, it's hmm. not over as long as living people are still affected by these hmm. same issues. So the, the past and the present and the future are so deeply intertwined in these counter memorials. Yeah. They're always at work. Well, Sarah, let's talk a little bit about something you've been involved with. I know that you've had a, a charrette, which I'll ask you to mm -hmm. describe to people here, but uh, related to Cold War and an uh, imaginary Cold War memorial. Yes. Um, so one of my creative projects, um, I am one of two co-directors of a wishful government agency known as the National Toxic Land and Labor Conservation Service. And we have been, um, we've charged ourselves with the uh, mission of producing um, cultural programming surrounding the ongoing environmental, cultural, and human health impacts of the Cold War and the ongoing atomic weapons complex in the United States. Um, and our primary, primary program currently um, which will continue for a few years, is to conduct um, what are called design charrettes, which is a collaborative um, workshop lasting one to two days where we bring together people who are stakeholders in one way or another um, to uh, talk about uh, atomic legacies, many of which are still very, very present with us, um, to design ways of moving through these spaces. These are not the heroic spaces of, say, the Manhattan Project. These are mundane and everyday spaces that were involved in um, very, you know, supply chain, nuclear supply chain stuff, oftentimes over decades. Um, where did waste go? Where, where do people live? All of these, these kinds of questions. Um, and then out of this kind of sharing and discussion process, we get non-artists and non-designers working with um, landscape architects, designers, um, drafts people to work on their own speculative monuments for the Cold War. And these have taken, taken the form of, of anything from alternative um, bus tours to um, sort of activist uh, earthworks, like uh, uh, to raise awareness of the impacts of um, uh, improperly disposed nuclear waste outside of St. Louis that was, that was part of the Manhattan Project, um, to uh, more, you know, things that are more, what we think of as more traditional forms of, of monuments like brass plaques in the ground and things like that, new media proposals. And we really are interested in um, uh, the, the kind of 
face-to-face, discussion-based sorting out of these ideas, and then the rather rapid development of images uh, that can then circulate beyond and form a series of propositions for this. Uh, we're less interested in, in realizing any one of the projects than we, than we are in having many divergent narratives um, materialized in these drawings to become part of this living memory and public discourse around this, which, you know, very little of which happens. Like the, the conventional narrative about the Cold War is that it ended uh, and that all of these, these legacies have been resolved. Uh, in the meantime, there are many people who are dealing with cancer still from occupational exposure or improper um, burial of wastes. Yeah. Yeah, so who are some of the people who come to participate in the uh, charrette? Well, we've only done one. Mm -hmm. um, the, our first one was in October at um, the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, and we had about 17 participants, um, several from Chicago, a number from central Illinois, and then um, about five, six people from the St. Louis area, including three women from an organization called the St. Louis Radioactive Waste Legacy Group, who are um, organizing around these um, this landfill outside of St. Louis that's actually on fire that has radioactive barium leachate from, from the Man Manhattan Project waste and um, working on getting that removed and um, adequate testing and monitoring of sites that are currently not, not yeah. sufficiently monitored. Yeah. yeah. So when we talk about alternative histories, this is kind of what you were getting at. Well, you also, of course, but, but this is sort of what you were getting at with the uh, reference to the Native American site. And, right, yeah. right. So one of the questions is how can you involve voices, stakeholders, groups who normally are not included in the major dominant story of history? And I, the more I look at these counter memorials and alternative monuments and alternative commemoration practices, the more you see, again, the, the merging of the past, present, and future, but also this desire to keep adding more and more and more layers, more and more and more voices, right? The AIDS quilt is 96,000 panels as of, I think, the end of 2012. And there are, they get the, almost daily, they get new panels in. Um, a panel being an individual, uh, a piece made for an individual person, which may have been made by an individual or by a group. Um, and one of the things uh, that, is, that has been driving my research on these questions, uh, I was fortunate enough to work on uh, putting together a symposium called Life After Activist Memorials and Digital Collaboration back in October. And one of the things that we got to talk about was the digital AIDS quilt, the AIDS quilt touch, which is actually being worked on by the Digital Studio for Public Arts and Humanities here at the University of Iowa. And it was saying, okay, so the, the quilt clearly isn't meant to be permanent, but it's already its need has lasted longer than its makers knew. And we want to keep getting more voices and we want to keep asking who gets to change what if someone wants to edit it? What if someone wants to add a story? How can we do that? And they said online is one of the ways to do it. Not only is it too big now to put out in public, but how can we give more people more access, more 
flow of information between them. Um, and likewise, we had Mona Smith come to talk about the Bedote memory map, which is mapping Dakota memory in the Twin Cities, Minnesota area. And it seems that many activists are turning to, again, ritual of participation and commemoration and performance, but also this the temporary can be really mm -hmm. powerful. Mm -hmm. The monument that is not meant to last, but that is meant to say it will give way in the future to, to a new monument, that there will always be more memorials. And uh, Joseph DeLapp, who is another of our guest artists, uh, has worked on many, many interesting pieces, but uh, the Iraqi Civilians Memorial is one where he said, I'm not going to make a memorial. I'm going to put out a continual, ongoing call for artists. And in a similar fashion, it doesn't matter in some way whether they get built. The point is that we keep a conversation going. So it becomes, back to Maya Lin's point, it's more about making a space where people are talking to each other mm -hmm. rather than coming, looking at something, going, yes, I agree, and leaving, but that we keep questioning and keep talking. Yeah. And so, so tell me something about the area you work in. You work in media arts or yeah. digital arts. I mean, so I, I work at sort of at the intersection of um, expanded forms of documentary mm -hmm. and, a, and a genre of contemporary art that's been called social practice. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the term that has been out there and seems to be sticking. Mm -hmm. right? It's been called other things too, but that one seems to have a little bit more dur durability. Um, and and uh, the, one of the tenets of, of social practice is that um, experiences, um, especially shared experiences with people, um, can be an artistic medium. Mm -hmm. um, we all know when we've um, had an experience that is beautiful, that is transformative, that is meaningful. And so over the last um, 30 years or so, and really accelerated quite a bit in the last decade, artists have been really trying to think about how, how can experiences be crafted in ways that are um, emancipatory for participants so that you know, authorship is often uh, co-created. The, the artist creates a situation and then invites other people to participate in it and ideally to um, contribute in a sort of meaningful way that was ultimately transformative, of the, the, exceeds what the artist could have imagined mm -hmm. for, mm -hmm. for that. Um, for that work, so so I, you know, I'm sort of loosely aligned with with those practices, and then sort of expansive forms of documentary that include sometimes, you know, photographs, photographic, video work, mm -hmm. writing, etc. Yeah. Yeah. Does this sort of uh, connect in some way with what used to be called happenings in the in the 60s? Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I think I mean some of the the pre the ancestors, progenitors. Founding fathers, that's such a loaded word, mm -hmm. um, of this way of working would include people like Alan Capra, who did happenings. Yeah. Um, it would also include um, folks like Joseph Boyce. He coined this term called social sculpture, which mm -hmm. anticipates a lot of, of work. Um, I was actually, ju I just assigned a Walter Benjamin um, article from the 30s, the author is producer, which I think really anticipates. Um, this social turn in art. He he was very interested in calling on artists, writers, musicians, theatrical producers to not just think about the work that they were producing, but how that work would enhance other people's capacity for creative expression and political expression. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, way back 80 years ago, uh, yeah. he was he was already on it. Yeah.
So if I'm understanding this correctly, the, the thing that occurs on a given day, the memorial that might be made, might be ephemeral, might not be mm -hmm. intended to last forever, might just be that thing that's there for a week. Or if you imagine something like the, the Wall Street uh, um, opposition groups uh, mm -hmm. a couple of years ago, you know, the tent cities and whatnot, um, there's a statement being made there. Some might have said that it was a collective, almost artistic expression mm -hmm. of, of uh, a different point of view. So it's, it's not the... Um, it's not the fact that this particular thing lasts, it's that the conversation lasts and that the dialogue continues and that people continue to bring their own new thoughts into it. And Yeah, and, and I would add to that the capacity to respond uh, to an event or a set of conditions is really one of the one of the things that a lot of these these um, practices seek to to keep open, to enhance the capacity for a response. Um, another thing, maybe to add or think about, is the relationship between commemoration of an event and commemoration of a condition. Mm -hmm. uh, it is it is we we have the obelisk to the victory. Um, but how do we commemorate a condition of colonialism or a yeah. condition of atomic exposure? Mm -hmm. These things have no beginning and they have right. no end. Right. That they and they structure so much of the social fabric of life that a single representation mm -hmm. is violently reductive. Mm -hmm. And so um, doing things that involve dialogue and participation is the, is really the only way to collectively sort through. Uh, what these structuring conditions really have meant. Yeah. Pluralism, repeating the same questions, the same, with different people, different answers, different potentials in each mm -hmm. moment. The poet Muriel Rukeyser calls it exercise, that poetry, that literature, that art is meant to give us collective, cultural, individual and collective exercise of our own human capacities. Mm -hmm. Wow, well thank you you guys for joining us in this uh, discussion. Alternative histories, counter memorials, and the whole notion of cultural uh, memory and commemoration. It's really, it's been an exciting series and we're glad you could be with us in this uh, last program. Uh, thank you also for joining us for this program, those here in the audience and anyone uh, watching online or at home. Uh, the entire series on cultural memory and commemoration can be found online on uh, YouTube, also on UITV, on iTunes and the internet International Programs website, international.uiowa.edu. I want to thank you all for being with us, and I hope you can join us for the next World Canvas when our topic is a century of film. Uh, we have some great guests for that program, and it's on February 21st. So for UI International Programs, I'm Joan Kerr. Thank you very much, and see you next time. <laughs>